Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette, discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free, <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> You're listening to Movie Oubliette, episode 63, the continental roaming movie review podcast with me, Dan, replacing snacks with fruit and thus eating four apples a day in Melbourne, Australia. And me, Conrad, mastering the art of muting for farts on Zoom in Cambridge, UK. <laughs> That's a skill. Uh, in this podcast, we discuss overlooked genre films, sci-fi, horror, and fantasy, because a man in a rubber monster suit with red googly eyes is the nightmare we <laughs> eagerly wish for. <laughs> Hello, Conrad. How are you today? I'm very well. So you're eating healthy now? Well, try. Supposedly. <laughs> That's an attempt. Well, it's summertime as well. I tend to find that my appetite goes down in the summer anyway. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I no. I just, I'm a big lover of food. <laughs> and I'm, meanwhile, trying to hide my digestive noises on Zoom conference calls. Mm, yeah, it's good. <laughs> yeah. One day I'll get it wrong and I'll just, I'll get it the wrong way around and I'll be <laughs> muted for the whole meeting apart from when I break wind. <laughs> so just, my entire contribution would just be a stream of farts. That'll be great, won't it? <laughs> yeah. Anything interesting happened to you, Conrad, this week? Well, I managed to get my London Film Festival tickets because, of course, coronavirus means yes. it's online as well as I think a few socially distanced screenings but I did manage to get tickets for Relic and Possessor Brandon Cronenberg's right. latest oh so exciting yeah I'm really looking forward to that and I also got tickets for a film about Shirley Jackson the writer of The Haunting of Hill House oh wow yeah starring Elizabeth Moss because the uh is it The Haunting of Bly Manor is about to come out on Netflix it is yeah, countdown right now. So probably by the time this podcast is out, people will be watching it already. Yeah, yeah. And shitting their pants. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I still have nightmares about that jump scene in the car. <laughs> oh, terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> Not so terrifying is our mailbag. Yes. Yes, so on Screamers, we heard from Paperback Science Fiction on Instagram who said, loved the story so much I had to go and find the movie. My local library had it, which was awesome. So, Oh, yes. Yeah. I remember going to the library and getting DVDs out. Yes, I know. Yeah, they even had CDs, even in the days of CD burners, which seemed unwise, I thought. <laughs> it was the golden age. <laughs> Yeah, it was. Napster and all that kind of fun stuff. Yes. We also heard from Surge of Cold Crash Pictures. Oh. Hello, Surge. Hey, Surge. 
who said, Screamers has more faults than virtues when you list them out on paper, and it doesn't help that Terminator and Tremors both came out before, mm-hmm. though not before Second Variety was written. But I still think the bones are so solid I'd be first in line to see or write the remake. And then he said, my favourite movie oubliette phenomenon is when I agree with every single criticism they have about a given film and then still go the opposite way on the final verdict. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's fun. (laughs) It's a personal taste, I guess. Yeah, I think it's really healthy when you can still criticise a movie, Mm. but then Mm. at the end of it say, but I love watching it. I think that's really... Mm. Really yeah. healthy. Yeah. <laughs> and we also had an email from Stuart who said, Hello, gentlemen. Hello. The similarity of the central image from Ivan's Childhood, which is a Tarkovsky film, actually his first film, to your logo, prompted me to write, I've been enjoying your show during lockdown in Melbourne. Strangely, I discovered Serge's Cold Crash channel before I found you, so I was delighted to hear him as a regular contributor. Oh, wow. Uh, thanks for the podcast. So that's great. Yay, we're, we've got some listeners in Melbourne. So, yeah, he's, he's actually a sound designer, so... Oh, wow. You guys could... <laughs> You guys could have a lot to talk about, so that's great. Let's get a drink sometime. <laughs> yeah. No, it does actually say, if you need a well-equipped field recordist anytime, hit me up. (laughs) That's great. Uh, But yes, he sent us some images from the Tarkovsky film that he's talking about. And there is a haunting image of, I think it's two children looking into a well and it's all black and layers of uneven layers of brick, sort of chiaroscuro light. It looks amazing and it looks exactly like (laughs) our logo. (laughs) Oh, wow. Well spotted. But yes, thanks everyone who wrote in and commented recently. We love hearing from you. Yes, we do. Conrad, what are we doing this episode? Oh, let's go on a journey of discovery to find out. (laughs) Oh, Oh, how lovely. It's a field in Ireland in here. Oh, charming. Looks like the film's peeking out from underneath a stone pillar in the middle of the field. Very phallic pillar. (laughs) Yes. Very phallic. Hang on. I'll just get this spade. It's really wedged in there. Oh, it's thundering all of a sudden. Unusual. I can hear growling. I'm coming back. Okay. Get upstairs, fuckface. Oh, the weather down there. I guess it's Irish weather. Yes, so unpredictable. (laughs) But I've managed to rescue a film called Rawhead Rex. Oh, yes, yes. We've been wanting to do this one for a while. We have, yes. The 1986 Irish fantasy horror film directed by George Pavlou and written by Clive Barker based on a short story of the same name. Mm, I'd love me some Clive Barker. This movie, none of us have seen as well. No. So it's a... Double blind. So who's in this movie? It stars David Dukes, Kelly Piper, Ronan Wilnot, Donal McCann, Neil Tobin, and Cora Venus Lunny. Okay. 
I don't know any of those people. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I have no idea who any of these people are. I'm sure they're all incredibly talented. Yes. So in this film, when a farmer in Ireland tries to dig up a giant stone phallus in a field during mm-hmm. an unconvincing hand-animated thunderstorm, he unwittingly releases a pagan demigod called Rawhead Rex, who looks something like a fanged American football player in S&M leatherwear. He then proceeds to terrorise the village and baptises a local vicar with a golden shower. <laughs> Just usual Irish behaviour, I guess. <laughs> Bloody tourists. <laughs> Speaking of which, it's up to visiting American scholar and chunky knitwear model Howard Hallenbeck and his wife Elaine to decode the secret messages hidden in the church's stained glass windows. Will they find the MacGuffin that will destroy Rex before he eats both of their children? Find out mm. after the break. <laughs> Sounds horrific. Can't wait. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we are back to talk about Rawhead Rex, the 1986 horror from Ireland. Mm. I don't watch many Irish horror films. I don't think I've really come across any apart from Grabbers. Oh, yeah. And uh, I've never heard of the director either, George Pavlo. No, and I hadn't even heard really much about this film. It was just one of these things that had a really cool-looking monster on the cover, and you think, oh, that looks interesting. But I never actually got around to watch. It. No, no, I never got round to watching this, but yeah. I have watched all of the other Clive Barker adapted films mm. Hellraiser, Nightbreed, Candyman, Book of Blood, and The Midnight Meat Train. Oh, yeah. And the only ones I haven't watched was, yeah, Roy Rex and Dread, and I think Lord of Illusion is another one I haven't watched either. Oh. So, yeah. Yeah, this one did pass me by. Yeah, I think that's why it's in the Oubliette. I think this is the one that people forget. I guess also because it's. Only the second Mm. Clive Barker adaptation as a feature film. The previous one was Underworld, which was also directed by the same director, George Pavlo, um, which I've never heard of and I would be interested to see. It's on YouTube. Oh, is it? (laughs) They might take it down when they hear this, but yes, it is on there as a terrible VHS transfer because you can't find it anywhere else. Right. I think it's also known as Transmutations. Right, right, right. There's another film by George Pavlo Little Devil's The Birth that also looks really interesting. Um, Ah. And that's it. Three feature films and I guess he gave up. I don't know why. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know what happened there. I think he went into producing for other people, maybe doing some TV. I don't know. I do know that he has personally bought the rights to Rawhead Rex, which is what enabled Arrow to do a 4K scan of the original camera negative and release a super duper special edition with amazing visual clarity, which is the version that I watched. Yeah, it was amazing to see. That's incredible. I love how there's like a resurrection of all these horror films from the 80s. Yeah, so we've got to see the best possible presentation of Rawhead Rex. As you say, only the second class Barker adaptation and it came from his books of blood which Transmutations didn't I think that was an original screenplay His books of blood were six volumes of short stories published between 84 and 85. There are 30 stories 
10 of them have been adapted into film or TV, right. including Candyman and The Midnight Meat Train and Lord of Illusions. Uh-huh. Brannon Bragar, I, I think that's how you pronounce I'm not sure, actually. <laughs> He's a Star Trek alum. He's just done a new film that was released this month on Hulu. Okay. The Books of Blood, which adapts two stories and then has two new ones i'm not sure why and then the two stories that he's adapted were the two stories that were turned into book of blood which you've seen already so yes 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 very strange choice but that's on hulu now right okay because i did find rawhead rex didn't really come across as a clive barker type story no his stories do tend to delve in snm Mm. territory with blurring lines between pain and pleasure yeah and a lot of sort of torture and torment or um but this movie didn't really go in that direction it was pretty much a creature feature with a resurrected monster that just terrorizes this tiny little irish town yeah it's shocking isn't it it's kind of a fairly straightforward monster on the loose movie yes with a little bit of 80s teen slasher inserted into the middle there's a bit of a diversion yeah that veers away from the short story and apparently clive barker wrote the screenplay so he put it in there so that whole section in the middle of it where you're seeing teenagers with strangely receding hairlines <laughs> Necking in the woods, yeah. being attacked by a monster. Yeah, so you get a little bit of the sort of Friday the 13th influence in there. But otherwise, it's just a bog standard monster on the loose thriller mm. with a little bit of what they call folk horror sort of weaved in there. That sense of strangers in a strange land being confronted by myths and legends coming to the floor and Mm. the sort of folk aspect the sort of pagan themes that were put into this film almost seemed out of place because Mm. you just think oh this monster is on a rampage but then he doesn't attack certain women because of their feminine charm i guess (laughs) Because he is the all-powerful figure of masculinity and men and Grr, phallic yeah. symbols and yeah. pissing on priests. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the one sort of sexually charged aspect of the movie that's very subversive that survived, which Clive Barker didn't think would survive. He put it in the screenplay. It's in the short story, the golden shower baptism of a local priest mm-hmm. who enjoys it. He's yep. really loving it. Yeah moment of it. It's a full-on torrent of pee. (laughs) Yep, exactly. And Clive said at the time that he saw a rough cut. He was pleased with how it was coming along. He said, children still getting eaten in it, which is very nice. The baptism scene was shot. It was in the cut I saw, but it will go. I don't believe urinating on vicars will stay. (laughs) So he had no confidence that this would remain in the finished picture, but there it is. There it is. The ultimate what the fuck moment that I was <laughs> yeah. very, very shocked to see. Yeah, I have to say, of all the things that we've seen on Movie Oubliette, I never thought I'd see a priest being pissed on by a demon. But there we go. <laughs> Chalk that one off my list. Yeah, yeah. So some of the sort of feminine versus masculine themes I thought seemed out of place. When he almost attacks the pregnant woman, but then... 
he finds out she's pregnant, so he runs away or something. Yeah. I was a bit confused by that scene. Yeah, and that's the thing that it doesn't really translate some of the backstory to it. It's all faithfully reproduced from the screenplay and the short story. Mm. This feminine idol, the Sheila Nagog thing, mm. a pagan symbol of female fertility that ultimately defeats him. And this idea that he is basically just the male sexual urge personified. He's supposed to look like a big throbbing penis. Mm. That was the design originally in the short story, and that's what Clive Barker wanted. And, yeah, the producers weren't keen <laughs> on having this big bulbous head with teeth. Yeah, I mean, they <laughs> half went there. I mean, he does have a rather large forehead. He does, yeah, but they didn't go full penis. <laughs> <laughs> Just the tip. No, yeah, yeah right. they, no, they, they didn't go there. They were a bit threatened by that. So, I mean, it's all there, in the, reproduced on the film, but it doesn't, because it's not really spoken out loud or made clear. I mean, it looks like when he discovers the woman's pregnant, he takes pity on her. Mm. But in actual fact, he's disgusted by the feminine. It's the one thing that sort of flattens his ardour. So yeah, <laughs> well, yes, yes. I think the main reason why it doesn't work is the lack of movement in the actual creature design in the face because yeah. he can pretty much open and close his mouth and that's it. And those eyes, mm. who okayed those eyes? They look ridiculous. Like It looks like we're looking at a Muppet. <laughs> Just big, googly red <laughs> eyes that glow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they tried, I guess. You could charitably say, I think they had four weeks to design and build this thing. Mm. They did the best they could, supposedly, as well as the costume. I think they also built an animatronic thing that could be used for close-ups right and i think you can see like a few clips and there's just like a few random things moving around in his jaw yeah and then of course the disco eyes sort of flashing and the eyes are the worst idea <laughs> looks like a toy yeah i actually didn't <laughs> mind the creature design I just wanted more movement in terms of like facial expression. Yeah. But the teeth themselves looked ferocious. And there were some scenes where it almost looked like there were two sets of teeth. Yeah. There was a mouth inside a mouth. Was I seeing that properly? Yeah, I think you were. And what I couldn't figure out was whether it was intentional or whether it was the actor inside and you could see oh, his right. teeth. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, don't I didn't know. mind it. I, the costume for me was simultaneously the worst and best thing about the film. <laughs> like, it was really bad with the eyes and the lack of movement, but the reveal of the monster, I was just, like, shouting, like, yes, this is amazing. Like, it's one of those monsters where you know it's just a guy in a rubber suit, but you don't care. You just go with it. Do you think so? I did, yeah. I went with it for the first <laughs> shot when he emerges from the mud underneath a stone and he flies up on that optical shot with the thunderstorm behind him mm. and he's covered in mud and shit. And I think all of the stuff that's all over him sort of covers up how crap it looks. It does, yes. So I thought that shot was really good, but then the rest of it when he was attacking people and it was always bravely in broad daylight pretty mm. much. Yeah. Which when you're doing... American Werewolf in London and it's gutsy but it's groundbreaking and Oscar winning go you but <laughs> when it's something you put together in a rush in four weeks maybe a little bit of artistic lighting and judicious editing would have been wise <laughs> I didn't mind it 
Did you know? Even though it looked bad, I was actually <laughs> oh, no. relieved to see the monster. I'm so sick of movies that hide the monster so much that I don't even know what I'm looking at. Right. Where it's just a blur of stuff and glistening whatever. Like, you just can't tell. Whereas with this, it was clear as day. Yeah. Right in the open, broad daylight. He attacks the house with all the lights on. There's no, like, dim lighting or anything. It's just... For all to see. And there's another scene where he attacks, yeah, the son. Yeah. <laughs> Which, yeah, I was shocked to see a child get murdered. Yeah. Broad daylight as well. It was, yeah. And it's quite a taboo still, killing kids. It is. I mean, I remember when I saw Dr. Sleep. Right. And they yes. have that scene in yes. the middle, spoilers, where they kill Jacob Tremblay, of all people, and this mm. beautiful little kid in this cameo just being tortured to death mm. and it's really really confronting and disturbing oh, so disturbing <laughs> just continuously stabbing him with a knife yeah awful yeah this one not so much i didn't find well <laughs> yeah you didn't actually see the kid get devoured or anything yeah it was off screen but it still happened yeah <laughs> <laughs> It wasn't trying too hard, I feel. Like, it knew that the monster wasn't great, but just went with it anyway. <laughs> I think a lot of it is to do with the fact that it is Ireland as well. If this was set in America, I think it would have been a lot worse. And I think the scenes would have been too cheesy. But because it was Irish people, I don't know. It, it had a pass for me. It got the pass. And I loved the dry Irish wit as well throughout the entire film. Like, there were some hilarious lines. Yes. I suppose there is the cultural aspect to it. And I think shifting it to Ireland was a bit of a masterstroke, to be honest, because the original story was based in Kent in southern England. Okay. And I think Clive Barker wanted to go for this sharp contrast between middle-class England with bright sunshine, with this monster rampaging around. Uh -huh. And instead you get grey, rainy Ireland. But considering how strongly religious Ireland is, mm. how strong tradition is there, that to have this pagan god, yeah. I think it's more shocking in this setting. Mm, and also just resonates more. I think people are genuinely more shocked. Whereas I think if you set it in southern England, people wouldn't be all that bothered. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I love horror films set in small towns. Yeah. I, I don't know what it is, but it has enormous claustrophobic aspect to it because of, I guess, less people. Mm. And just the fact that, yeah, there's just a monster just roaming the countryside, going from house to house and killing people. Yeah. So what did you think of the acting and the characters in the film? Well, I find it very hard to get over acting when 90% of it is ADR. Mm. <laughs> so a lot of it has been dubbed and not very well. And it's hard to match ADR acting. So often it becomes overacted. And yeah, a lot of the scenes were very overacted, especially the wife. Elaine. Was her, yeah. Elaine. What was the reasoning behind her character? Because she just seemed very horny for most of the film. <laughs> she was a representation of feminine sexuality, I guess. So she's just 
Horny. I mean, that scene where they're kissing on the street. Oh, certain appropriate. <laughs> Get a room. <laughs> I know because it's like full, like tongue plunging into mouths mm. kind yeah. of stuff. Goes on for a while. Yeah. Yes. And this is while she's goading him about the possibility that because he's a historian, he might be interested in a bit of necrophilia. Mm. They might try that later or something. Yeah. Ooh. Nope. <laughs> there are a lot of scenes with her that would end, and I would just think what <laughs> what just happened what did you say the scene where they're in bed and she really wants some and he has to do something else and then he asked her about like who's big jake yeah some backstory she'd been talking in her sleep hadn't she yes, he wondered right. who big jake was and she's like oh big jake it's like <laughs> what, <laughs> what? who are you but maybe it was just a running gag between the two. I don't know. It's quite a nice depiction of a marriage, I guess. I mean, they're in their late 30s, 40s, mm. I would guess. Yeah, yeah. And still very much into each other. And Yeah, yeah. <laughs> perhaps a bit too much. I mean, if we're talking about acting, we can't go past the priest, mm. the one that gets baptised. Uh, <laughs> what what do you think of his acting? Well, he went for it, didn't he? I mean, he, he didn't hold back. He has some incredible line deliveries in the movie where I don't think he's just chewing the scenery. I think he's spitting it back out. Yes. <laughs> A pretty yes. amazing, fully committed performance. <laughs> yeah, his name is Robin Wilmot, that's right. Mm. Yeah, some of the scenes was kind of reminiscent of... Nicholas Cage, how he just starts <laughs> shouting for no reason. <laughs> yeah, the Wicker Man remake or something. <laughs> There's one scene where Helen Beck asks him, what's the monster going to do with you once he's done with me? And then he just shouts, kill me, I hope. <laughs> just, yeah, I don't know. I guess the director just let them do whatever. But yeah, some of the, some of the lines were just... Bizarrely delivered. Really bizarrely delivered. I mean, he has that classic line, something he says to the actual vicar, because he's the verger, isn't he? He's not actually the vicar. Yes, that's And he right, says he is, to yes. the vicar, his boss, something about up the stairs, fuck face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Apparently it's in the script, not an ad lib at all. Right, right. Okay. Well, I mean, it does remind me of Father Ted a little bit. So <laughs> That's the maybe problem. It's... <laughs> That's the problem. Ever since Father Ted, I cannot take <laughs> things set in small Irish villages all that seriously. Right. I mean, obviously, yes. I would be able to if the film was very atmospheric and serious and tonally very different. I'm sure there are. Irish horror movies out there or horror movies set in Ireland that I would find incredible as an experience to watch mm. that I would take very, very seriously. But when you've got a rubber monster running around <laughs> eating children in broad daylight, I just can't take it seriously at all. Right. Yeah. I mean, isn't that the point, though? To not take it seriously? I think it wants to be taken seriously. I it? don't know. It came across as almost like a comedy to me. It reminded me heaps of New Zealand horror films. So all the Peter Jackson early films. Right. Bad Taste, Brain Dead. It had a similar vibe. There was a lot of humour in this. Mm. There's one scene where Helen Beck visits the main priest and he's got a collection of clocks. And he says, oh, striking collection. And then <laughs> the priest says... 
Well, it passes the time, oh. and it's just, <laughs> I love that. I love just the ridiculous dad jokes. Ludicrous puns, yeah. Yeah, it's like he gets off on the wrong foot with the urine-soaked verger by saying, he's looking for the vicar, and the vicar's called Coot. Oh, yeah. And he says, this guy Coot, he wouldn't happen to be old, would he? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's such a dad joke. It's so groan-worthy. Oh, I laughed at it. Oh, oh no. <laughs> It's so cringy. It's so bad. It's good. I loved it. I love that humor. But I don't think it's meant to be funny, though. Oh, really? I don't think you're in a laughing with situation there. I think you're laughing at. Right. Yes. Well. I mean, there is humor in there. Obviously, there are lines that are meant to be funny. There is humor. Um, yeah. But I don't think the monster itself and the jeopardy that the town is in and what he represents was meant to be funny. Right. I think. Clive Barker was quite upset with the end result. In fact, he was so upset with how Transmutations and Rawhead Rex came out that when it came to Hellraiser, he said, if this film gets made, I'm directing it. Right. I'm not having this happen to my stories anymore. <laughs> yeah. Well, Hellraiser is definitely a horror classic. It's it's definitely up there in one of the best horror films of all time. So yeah. I guess he did have his way in the end. And it's the only Clive Barker book I've actually read as well. Really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Hellbound Heart. Yeah. Yes. I've read a few. They are very sexually charged. Right. And uniquely gay in their perspective as well. Oh. Right. Yeah. Okay. Which gives him a unique voice, but he does confront you with things that you have never come across in horror fiction before. Uh -huh. And he said adaptations like Rawhead Rex were deeply disappointing because the filmmakers didn't give a shit about the story's underlying psychology. They just wanted to make a monster movie. It does come across as that. It does. Like yeah. I said, all of the sort of underlying undertones of femininity and sort of pagan themes were very underlying. Yeah. <laughs> and the main star of the show was a monster rampaging a tiny town. Yeah. It's very basic. And it's not Hellraiser. Mm. Yeah, it's not surprising when Stephen King saw Hellraiser, he says, I have seen the future of horror and its name is Clive Barker. Mm -hmm. Didn't turn out to be the case, though, really, did it? I mean, it... After Hellraiser, things didn't go well for Clive Barker, certainly in terms of cinema. No. Yeah, I wouldn't say Hellraiser's the start of greatness. It was kind of the peak of greatness. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Clive. But yeah, a lot of the films after that were definitely low budget and not nearly as good. No. There were two parts of the film actually three parts of the film hmm. that I have criticisms for. Firstly, I didn't like the Elaine Helen Beck character. I felt she was overly horny for no apparent reason and very two-dimensional. They didn't really delve into her as an actual character. She just seemed like the wife. Yeah, that's true. And for her to save the day at the end seemed a little bit shoehorned in like they kept her around for the final scene yeah and it seemed like a shame like they could have developed her as more of a main character yeah and then at least the ending would have been earned she comes from nowhere and it makes a lot of sense in the short story it is the man holding up this icon of female mm. fertility that kills the monster and in the movie and in Clive Barker's screenplay he obviously realized that the better thing to do would be for it to not work mm. have the suspense of it not working until Elaine shows up and picks it up and then lo and behold 
the woman saves the day, which mm. is right. It makes perfect sense. It does. It does. Yes. If she'd been involved more. Yeah. <laughs> if she was a natural character, yes. Yeah. It would have made much more sense. So that's one thing I, I had a problem with. Yep. The second thing is the only scene with exploitation. Mm. So the girl gets dragged out of the caravan and yeah. her dress falls off. Of course it does. Why? There's no reason, apart from your exploitation nude scene, yes. topless woman in a horror movie. She appears to have chosen to wear a dress that's made out of paper and no bra yes. in February in Ireland, which seems a very unwise choice. And of course, I'm sure she regrets it when she gets pulled out of a window and her dress immediately just disintegrates mm. to leave her breasts on display while she's murdered. There is no need for it at all. It's really gratuitous and yeah, awful it is. to watch. It is. It is. It yeah. comes out of nowhere. It just seems mm. like a horror movie thing to do in the 80s. It does, yeah. I'd be surprised if Clive Barker put that in his screenplay, but who knows. Mm, yeah. The third thing I had a problem with was there is a few scenes where the verger has a experience, I guess. So he touches the table and for some reason he's looking through the eyes of Rawhead Rex, the monster. Right. But they didn't explore that. That happens a couple of times. Yeah. And nothing else really happened. Like, you didn't really see this verger descend into madness. He was just suddenly snapped crazy. Yeah. Just insane. And I wish they'd kind of explored it, like a, having sort of a descent, like a journey into losing his mind. But... They didn't. No, it's a really underdeveloped part of the screenplay as well because people keep touching what appears to be just a tablecloth yes. and their hand glows red. And when a woman does it, she screams or she's holding a vase or something and yeah. screams right yes. at the very beginning. I don't know what's going on there. Then he does it, the verger does it, and he is possessed by Rawhead Rex or just becomes an acolyte in some way. Mm. A policeman later on becomes under the thrall of Rawhead Rex after he's just picked him up and decided That's not right. to kill him. Yeah. And his day-glow eyes hypnotise him in some way. But I don't know. It's not really very clearly explained. No, it's all not. Of that. It's and not. I didn't get anything from the Predator Vision shots at all. I thought, why am I seeing this? Exactly. Whose perspective is this? I just don't get what it is that he's getting from this at all. Yeah, it seemed like they just wanted a Predator shot. Yeah. <laughs> it was all strange and all warpy, but there really wasn't a purpose to it. No, not at all. I completely agree with that. All of the mystical underlying elements of this film are lost. And so even though they're still in there, they're so underexplained and under developed that you can't really understand what they are yeah but then a monster attacks somebody so you just forget about it yeah so yeah i think that ties in with clive barker's feelings about the adaptation right that they just skipped over those parts yes yes changing the subject completely talking about costumes there is a lot of knitwear in this film i mean granted <laughs> it is ireland and february <laughs> it's cold it's cold yeah apparently it was so cold they had to hose down the streets in the forest because it was snow and they just didn't want errors in continuity with snow or no snow yeah i did read that the costume designer cancellata boyle is actually quite <laughs> quite a good costume designer and she's gone on to be nominated for an oscar for the queen oh and wow. she did philomena the iron lady Angela's Ashes, and also a recent film that I just watched, Enola Holmes, which actually had amazing costumes in that. So I know. I love that movie. Did you enjoy it? I did. It was very 
charming. Like, yeah. It was the only word I could come up with. Yeah, that's the perfect word. It was just all the right amounts of quirkiness and secrets and codes. It was just like, made me giddy. Like, it reminded me of like Famous Five or like yeah. Secret Seven in a Blighton books. <laughs> yeah. I love Millie Bobby Brown in it as well. I think she's got real charisma. Mm, she does. She's a real talent. And all of her fourth wall breaks were hugely fun. Mm. Yeah. I love that. I did. I loved <laughs> it that. too. I loved it too. But no knitwear at all, as I recall. <laughs> no. No, no, where? I mean, I suppose she's researched the area. She's got a sense of what the people wear and she's dressed them accordingly. Mm. But wow. <laughs> it's a lot of knitwear. It's a lot of knitwear. Yeah, people look very warm. Yeah. And I'm surprised <laughs> to see the visiting Americans adapting to local customs in terms of knitwear so quickly as well. But yeah. <laughs> I actually was suspicious whether they were actually American actors because his accent fluctuated. Oh. It was really strange. <laughs> David Dukes. No, he is definitely an American character actor. Right. Quite a well-loved one. He died quite young, sadly. Right, okay. Um, He was only 55 and he had a heart attack while he was making Stephen King's miniseries, Rose Red. Oh, okay. It's really sad. But yes, he is American. I believe Kelly Piper is American too. She was in Maniac. Right. The original version of Maniac. It's the kids that aren't because obviously... There are loads of rules about how often you can use kids in movies, how long they can work for. And I think shipping two kids abroad is probably not done all that often. Yeah, right. So it's two local Irish kids doing their best attempt at American (laughs) accents. It's not bad, especially Cora Looney who's only five at the time. Yeah, right. I mean, she's now known as Cora Venus Lily. She's a very talented violinist. She went on to great things. It's one thing that I don't like about this movie is it has to have the American family visiting. It's very much the same as Hellraiser. I think it really marred Hellraiser as well because that was clearly a post-production choice, which is we have so little faith that we're going to bring in American audiences unless we have American characters in this. So I think in Hellraiser, everybody was dubbed in post to be American. Oh, oh really? Even though it's clearly London that they're in, and it just doesn't make any sense. And here you've got the visiting American scholar who is solving the mysteries of this local village and defeating the monster, or his wife does. Yeah. I mean, I think it is something that plagues a lot of small productions in sort of smaller countries. Like if you think of Razorback Mm. as well, it's got the American... American character in that. Yeah, yeah and, that's true. Yeah. Um, if you think of Peter Jackson's The Frighteners, it's got Michael J. Fox, who for some reason is the only American in this yeah. completely New Zealand produced movie. <laughs> it makes <laughs> yeah. no sense. Yeah, it does seem a shame. I mean, in this case, it's funny because they were chasing another million dollars of money for the budget from American sources and it never actually materialized. So they went to all that effort to try and make the film attractive to American investors. And then they didn't get the money. And I think they were halfway through filming when George Pavlou was told, yeah, you've got to hurry up because we don't actually have half the budget that you were expecting. Right. Oh, so okay. he couldn't shoot past midnight because then you go into really expensive overtime. So they were rushing mm. to do the night scenes after the sun went down. Right. So he didn't get to do half of the things that he was planning to do. And he was really stressed and didn't have a very good time making the movie. Okay. 
Okay. It does show signs of being part of the whole underfunded British horror tradition in the mid 80s. I remember reading in Kim Newman's book Nightmare Movies that between Extro in 82 and Hellraiser in 87, no British horror film was given a theatrical release. Uh. So oh, no. they were all underfunded, bad box office, mm. straight to video. Yeah, so well. It's a compromised movie. It doesn't seem like it to me. <laughs> it doesn't, no. I mean, I will give it that. There are many scenes in it that have got well-constructed sequences, great shots. There's crane camera work in really mm. difficult-to-reach locations. Some of the stuff in the woods, for example, I love when the uh, teenagers are running through the woods and he's got those low-angle shots looking up at them, looking up at the tall trees. Yeah. There's a lot of atmosphere in all of the shots. You can tell they've smoked down the sets all the time indoors and out. So it's got a sort of misty quality to it all the time. Mm. I mean, it's not a cheap looking, ugly, badly edited film. Mm. It's not extra intruder or extra. Yeah, that's a <laughs> extra is a good comparison. <laughs> yeah. Well, extra didn't make any sense. No. At least this kind of made sense. There's a tagline for the poster. Kind yeah. of makes sense. <laughs> now it's time for random trivia. So, Dan, what fantastic piece of trivia have you discovered under a rock in Ireland today? Well, uh, we have covered quite a quite a lot of trivia that uh, <laughs> I looked yeah. up, but I do have one remaining fact. And there is one scene in the film that's actually pretty impressive. Uh, it's when everyone just catches fire <laughs> because oh, there's yeah. petrol all over the ground and then the the police inspector goes crazy because he's been mesmerised by the monster and he sets it on fire and everyone's on fire. So that scene <laughs> did actually take two nights to film, which oh it's, it's always so astounding when you find out at such a short scene which I mean that scene was what like a minute two minutes mm. uh, took two nights wow yeah and I think they only had one take of the full body burns I think they had six people on fire at once which right. was a record at the time I think it's been surpassed by you know many movies with hundreds yeah. of people on fire at once but yeah six people on fire at once in this small Irish village <laughs> yes, yes. So, yeah, it's a pretty impressive piece of pandemonium that sequence it is it is yeah oh, and that's our trivia yes Going back to the monster, so the actor Heinrich von Schellendorf hmm. uh, was Rawhead Rex. He was only 23 at the time. He wasn't an actor. I thought he was, size-wise, he did look huge. Yeah. He looked massive. And especially the scene where he's carrying, is it one of the priests? Yeah. He looks ginormous. He does, yeah. He's supposed to be eight feet tall, though, Rawhead Rex, and I don't think they quite pulled that off. Yeah. <laughs> he does look imposing, for sure. They were after Peter Mayhew originally, weren't they? They were after oh, Chewbacca. Yeah, Chewbacca, yes. And they talked to him about it, and he was prepared to do it, but then he sent them the bill, and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the producers balked at that. Yeah. So yeah. They went with random German guy. <laughs> mm, mm. 
who did his best. I think he was given directions and didn't always follow them terribly well. I think they had problems with it. Right. I do find that he sort of windmills his arms quite a lot, which I don't find particularly threatening. <laughs> yeah, he does do a lot of <laughs> kind of waving them around. Yes. It looks like he's just trying not to fall over. But <laughs> <laughs> Probably can't see a thing as well. No, I'm sure he can't. No, but I mean, it's not comically bad all the time yeah <laughs> some of the time it is though yeah i never felt particularly threatened to be honest watching the movie oh wow i wasn't frightened at any point no i no i i especially that scene in the farmhouse the first sort of killing scene i thought that was actually really well done yeah that one is but I was never particularly frightened by it. He spent more time trashing the spaghetti in their kitchen than killing people, <laughs> yes, he didn't did. he really? <laughs> had a real problem with kitchens. <laughs> so one thing I did notice about this film that I was surprised about considering its budget was the score. It's fully orchestral, which is quite rare for a film of this it period. Is. Well, just like Screamers, I think there's sort of orchestra either side of some fairly basic synth mm. bashy crashy stabby stuff in the uh, suspense scenes in the middle i find it too overactive and too flourishy and over orchestrated and fancy and busy to me it's sort of the score equivalent of a dress that's got too many frills and laces and details and buttons and ribbons hanging off it. It's just like twiddling and twaddling all over the place. Right. During the driving scenes, for example, it's a sort of twiddly, 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 woodwind, 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 twiddly, twiddly. And I'm just thinking, <laughs> oh, shut up. It dates the film, I think. Because if you think of other things that were coming out around the time of this, in 1985, 1986, mm. it sounds very sort of 60s, 70s, overly busy monster movie music. Right. What did you think? I loved it. Oh. I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm always so surprised when I hear a full orchestra in such a low-budget horror. I really love the busyness. I'm a huge fan of... 50s and 60s orchestral scores for thrillers, like all the Hitchcock movies, all the Bernard Herman stuff, which is just, yeah, oh, it's too much music. But I love it. I love the too much music. I love the extra flourishes and little twiddly, twiddly parts. I'm sick of Marvel movies where it's just like, here's an ominous tone. Here's another ominous tone. Here's some percussive, jarring action music. Oh, here's another ominous tone. It's suitable. Mm. Yes. But musically and thematically, it's boring. And for this movie, I actually really liked the music. And even though the synth stuff was very basic, it, it kind of did its job without sounding overly cheesy. Yeah. There was a weird synth, I think it's a synth sound, I'm not entirely sure, in the church, in the sort of more ethereal moments, with all these kind of bird synthy sounds. It was oh. really strange, but kind of, yeah. I thought it was fitting. Yeah, that's supposed to be uh, the representation of what's inside the altar, the Sheila Nagog. Oh, really? <laughs> that feminine idol calling out to them. It's supposed to sound sort of feminine. To me, it sounded like a cheap seagull sound effect on a Casio keyboard. Yeah, really it totally did. It. I oh, I really it. liked it. I, I don't think it was effective in what it was actually trying to achieve. I didn't know. I didn't realize it was trying to be calling out. It didn't scream alluring femininity to me. <laughs> no. 
That's what it was meant to be. Right. Yeah. Oh, I completely agree with you that generally speaking, what I hate about scores now is that they slip into sound design. Sometimes that works really well. It depends on the tone that you're going for. Mm. But mainstream blockbuster movies are terribly dull and too many scores sound like they're just trying to copy something else that's been copied and pasted exactly. during the editing process. Tape music. The temp score. Mm. And I don't have a problem with classic movies that have got classic scores in a style that they were used to at the time. Like, I love Bernard Herrmann as well. Mm. It's just that in 1986, it just sounds terribly British and overly fancy and <laughs> frilly. And it just sounds very, very 60s and 70s to me for a 1986 monster movie. Mm. The thing is, for me, I'm just sort of thinking of Hellraiser, which again has Christopher Young doing a very big operatic orchestral score but that's so stylish and so fitting for the film i mean that resurrection cue when mm. frank is coming back from the dead it's fantastic stuff but if it had been sort of this 70s twee british twiddly twiddly d crap going on in the background i just <laughs> would have given up with it i'm afraid yeah i don't know nuances <laughs> it's nuances <laughs> yeah i don't think this movie was trying to reinvent the wheel or anything it no. wasn't trying for something new it wasn't trying to be overly original or anything like that but it does the cheese well oh. i don't know i appreciate that yeah not so much i mean i quite enjoy the grotty 80s britain insight again like i enjoyed that with extra <laughs> yeah like the police station to me it looked like the police station was in somebody's grand's house <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> hideous tea stained desks and wallpaper that was going brown and peeling off mm. <laughs> it was just a yeah. horrible small provincial place and everything was run down and grotty and i quite liked that time capsule aspect to it mm. I don't think it's going for that, though. I don't think it's going for <laughs> cheese. I mean, it's not like American Werewolf in London where all the sort of provincial silliness of the local police is supposed to be funny. Mm. There is a culture clash going on there, and I don't think they really went for that here. Right. And finally, just a word on the ending, which not only doesn't make sense because they haven't explained any of the underlying folklore or themes or anything that's going on, it also just goes on forever. It does. Seemingly endless yeah. hand animated stuff flying everywhere. The blue sparkles, yeah. yeah. And then at the end of the movie, you just have to have a rip-off of the Carrie stinger for some reason. Yeah, he just jumps. He doesn't even jump out of a grave. He just jumps out in front of the camera. He just pops out to say, still alive! There's just no reason for it. That wasn't in the screenplay. <laughs> right, yeah. It's obligatory, though. Well, It's like a horror... <laughs> must have yeah there are so many silly references in it like there's a reference to nicholas rogues don't look now where the woman in the red coat stops them on the street i think it's during that disgusting kiss yeah the kissing's a yes although yes. i wondered whether because elaine looks at that and says oh she reminds me of something i was it's like i've seen that somewhere before and then it turns out that there is a feminine figure in a red robe holding up the Sheila Nagog in the stained glass window. So I thought as well as being a Don't Look Now reference, it might actually have been a hint oh. that Elaine was feeling her burgeoning feminine power, oh, yes. her oh. connection to the thing in the altar or something. I don't know. Mm. So maybe that was purposeful. That's another thing that I was a bit confused about, the stained glass window sort of... <laughs> 
puzzle solving. Yeah. That didn't really make any Like, he had taped these Polaroids together, but yeah. you couldn't really see anything. Like, it no. didn't. It wasn't one of those things that just makes perfect sense because it all fits together. It just, I just, I was kind of scratching my head wondering, how are you getting to this conclusion? I'm confused. Yeah, it's not like uh, In the Mouth of Madness where Sam Neill puts together all those ripped oh, pieces yeah, the, of book covers. covers. Yeah. yeah, that actually works. No, him just randomly bulldog clipping Polaroids together did not work. I did like the set of the church, though. Yeah. I didn't even realise it was a set until I listened to the commentary. No. And then they just completely trashed it. They did, yeah. Well, I guess that's the reason why it makes sense that it's a set. Yeah, yeah. I can't imagine them letting them do that in the local church. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Although apparently staging a demon pissing on a vicar was fine. Yeah, wow. Well, have a problem with that. If it's not a real vicar, it's, it's, uh, it's all good. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Mobley Awards. Hey, it's the Mobley Awards. It's where we pull out through broken caravan windows our favourite parts of the film in a number of terrifying rubber-suited categories. Best quote. You've already taken my favourite quote. <laughs> oh, no. But that's fine. No, I do love the Verger's line, kill me, I hope. <laughs> just ridiculously operatic. And I just love how he chews the scenery. I think there's another one that he says just a slightly earlier where he says, there's no escape. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> yeah, that guy's great. I loved every line that he delivers. Mm, what about yeah. you? <laughs> so much conviction. Uh, yeah, I love one of the lines near the start. It's with the son and, and Helen Beck, uh, his, his dad. The son's saying, I'm bored. And then Helen Beck says, bored? Robbie, how could you be bored? This is the land of your forefathers, remember? And the son just replies, yeah, they left. <laughs> <laughs> Cheeky little bugger. Yeah, and now he knows why. <laughs> it's cold and miserable and there's not much to do. And then you get eaten. Mm. So. Yeah. <laughs> it's not ideal overseas experience. No, not at all. <laughs> Best hair or costume. I think we have to praise the epic knitwear though, don't we? I mean, especially yes. Hallenbeck's signature piece, which is this thing that has enough wool for at least three or four cardigans. Mm. It's double breasted with this rollover shawl collar or lapel arrangement and these pretend leather buttons that are actually plastic. I remember these cardigans oh, from when I was a kid. Right. My grandparents used to wear stuff like this. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, so yeah, it's authentic 80s hideous knitwear and it's quite something to behold. I'm glad it's been preserved for the ages in 4K. <laughs> <laughs> Most 80s moment. This is not really 80s, but it's a line that parents say through the ages. Uh, mm. So, Robbie, the son, is seen constantly reading this comic, and his mother says to him, No more comics, Robbie. They rot the brain. <laughs> and through the decades, there's always the new thing that rots the brain. Yeah. At the moment, it's mobile phones. It's mobile phones now, yes. It used to be TV. Yes. And then before that, it was comic books, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How about you, 80s? 
I was going to say unnecessary female nudity. I mean, we've oh, we've talked about that sequence, yes. but it does feel sort of early eighties. It feels sort of Friday the Thirteenth knockoff slasher movie. Yes, it does. Nasty, horrible nudity that's not really necessary at all. So yeah, it feels as though in 1986, really, we'd sort of moved on from that. But yeah, here it is. Mm, mm -hmm. Favorite scene. You've mentioned it before, but I will say yes. The first attack scene I did think was very well staged. I loved it. It's a little bit silly that Rawhead decides to hide in a barn behind some fruit boxes. Mm -hmm. but <laughs> I did like it. There are some crane shots. There's suspense. There's some atmosphere in the scene. I suppose it's terrifying, but I do feel as though it's kind of undermined by the full views of the rubbery unexpressive monster <laughs> <laughs> i love that scene as well i thought there was a lot of danger and peril mm. i like the the point of view shots as well from the monster and um him making a mess in the kitchen uh, <laughs> but yeah yeah i think it was a very effective scene probably the only one <laughs> <laughs> Most cliche horror moment. So I've talked about it. The monster does make a mess in the kitchen. He does. Monsters always make a mess. I mean, this particular monster really goes out of his way to make a mess. <laughs> he flips the table. He pushes everything off the counter in the kitchen. He's, yeah, it's almost like he entered the room and thought, this is not acceptable. <laughs> Proceeded to <laughs> renovate. <laughs> yeah, every single ingredient for the night's dinner has to go, I noticed. like, And that pasta, he, he's really keen to destroy that pasta. Mm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, Conrad, how about you? I'm going to take a leaf out of Travis Malloy's book here. Oh, yes. From the vanishing episode we did quite some time ago. Mm. Um, he pointed out the old cliche of the cops don't believe me scene, which uh, I think yes. you especially have to have in a monster movie. And it always has to have the line, look, I know how this sounds. <laughs> yes. Best special effect. I think actually most of the makeup effects were pretty good. Aside from the monster, I thought all of the wounds, the bites, the scratches, and especially the severed heads yeah. I thought they were pretty good. They were for phenomenal. the amount of resources they had. Yeah, I yeah. thought they were really, really good stuff. And the blood as well, which they said on the commentary was just red food coloring and coffee granules. Really? But it looks really good. Wow. <laughs> it looks good. Mm. Also, the severed hand. That was mm. really, yeah, that, that was, was really good. Effective. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah. yeah. How about you? I'm going to say something outlandish, but yeah, the monster was no. simultaneously the best, <laughs> worst effect no. of the film. I don't know why, but even though it was so bad, I was just cheering him on. <laughs> I, I wanted to see more of him. I wanted more killing and more uh, <laughs> rampaging. Yeah, oh. I was a big uh, supporter of the creature design. Oh, wow. Are you kneeling down in a graveyard and opening your top to be peed on? <laughs> or not quite that far? <laughs> Maybe not quite that far. <laughs> Favorite sound effect. Well, we've already talked about it, but my worst sound effect is the cheap synthesizer patch for the seagulls that's supposed oh, to represent yes. the ultimate feminine power that's emanating from the altar. So, yeah, I really hated that. I thought that was terrible and cheesy. Right. And undermined the most serious <laughs> part of the movie. But, yeah, never mind. 
How about you? Right. So the scene where the housewife is cutting meat, mm. very strange sound that they've put there. It sounds like ripping paper. <laughs> it's like <laughs> ripping a cabbage in, in half or a lettuce. Like it's very crunchy and wet sounding. I, I know... They're, they're trying to make the meat sound much more disgusting than it actually is. Yeah. Well, it is British beef, so maybe it does oh, sound right. like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's much tougher. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's like really crispy. <laughs> Most funniest moment. I found these scenes particularly funny because they were just so badly sort of depicted, I guess. So there's one where the boy from the caravan is recovering and being given a piece of paper to draw the monster and he draws the monster and then I think Helen Beck draws the monster yeah. and they show both the pictures <laughs> and they're equally the worst drawing ever <laughs> that anyone could ever uh, render for the Rawhead Rex monster. Just terrible, terrible. What I, um, what I love is like Helen Beck's is worse than the kids and he's like it is, 40. It is. <laughs> <laughs> so bad and then you Conrad funniest for me it has to be when the teenager with the receding hairline Andy is killed by Rawhead Rex you just have this fantastic sequence where they're running through the woods him and his girlfriend and mm. they're together Rawhead jumps out you don't know what's happened and the next thing you see is his girlfriend running out to the villagers in the, the caravan park Yes. And she goes to gesticulate towards the woods to explain what's happened, and she realizes that she's still holding the severed hand of her friend. <laughs> yes. And I know that was supposed to be horrifying, but I wet myself laughing. I thought it was so funny. Patron's Choice. So this Patron's Choice Moobly Award category comes from the listener Hannah. Thanks, Hannah. And she wants us to pick the Academy Goes To moment. <laughs> well, there's obviously a clear winner. There is a clear winner here. <laughs> <laughs> so, the Academy does go to uh, Robin Wilmot. As Declan O'Brien. Declan O'Brien. Because <laughs> every line, he really commits. Yeah. Really, really commit. I would love to see <laughs> the montage of the nominees at the Academy and to see him standing there going, Kill me, I hope. <laughs> and get upstairs, fuckface. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, hands oh. down, give the man the statuette. <laughs> yes. Let's do it now. <laughs> and that's our movie, please. Yeah. Hey, hey, it's final verdict time. Should Rawhead Rex be praised as the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, resurrected for all the townsfolk to see? Or should it be shone with sparkly blue light so that it plummets to its grave in the dark oubliette, lost in pagan mythology? Conrad, does it deserve to be resurrected? 
No. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no suspense from me. No. I, I'm fully on board with Clive Barker's opinion here. I don't think it's a great realisation of his work. I think it's a, a fairly bog-standard monster on the loose movie. It's not quite funny enough to be self-consciously funny, and I don't think it's so bad it's good. I think it's just sort of straight down the middle incompetent, to be honest. I mean, right, okay. It, th there's a lot of it that is competent. I mean, it's the cinematography's by John Metcalf, so it looks good for the time and the resources they had. I mean, it's great source material, but it's just not very well explained. All of the, the subtext of the movie, and even the basic mechanics of why Rawhead Rex is there, what he represents, and why he's defeated at the end, and what all of it means. It just devolves into a half-an-hour special effects sequence straight out of Highlander for some reason. Yeah. Blue hand-animated stuff <laughs> lying everywhere. I wasn't scared at any point, and I thought the monster was just laughably ridiculous, to be honest, because he was basically like a Halloween costume. I mean, great cosplay material for Comic-Con, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but not really Rawhead Rex as Clive Barker envisioned it. So I think... There's something there to be reimagined later. It was fun to watch it in 4K with all of its knitwear and all of its British grottiness in the <laughs> mid-80s. But I don't think it's a hidden gem that deserved, you know, massive praise or anything like that. I think it's it's quite happy just to be sort of nestled under a rock and, and forgotten, really. <laughs> but uh, I think you probably have a different well, opinion. I'm going to do a surge here. Um, as much as I agree with everything you've just said, I thought this movie was hugely fun and hugely <laughs> hilarious. Probably all the wrong reasons. Like it probably was a very serious film and it was probably trying to, to make something terrifying, but uh, mm. it was just hysterically funny for me. And <laughs> I had so much fun. I loved all the monster scenes. They were ridiculous and stupid, but so entertaining. I don't know. I found right. I found myself entertained. And this is just classic 80s B-grade horror to a T. <laughs> but so bad it's good. So bad it's good. It's the type of movie you would see in a movie where they go to a scary movie at the drive-in and they would watch <laughs> this movie. <laughs> Yes, that's true, actually. Yeah, I can see this being in the background with the with the cheap monster. That yeah, exactly, people. exactly. I like yeah. the shittiness of it. I embrace the <laughs> shittiness. I embrace the cheese and the overacting and the bad ADR and, and the nonsensical underlying plot and the ridiculous ending. I embraced all of that. And yeah, I thought they were all pluses for me. Oh, so bad wow. it's good. Rawhead Rex. Oh, well, you know what this means. <laughs> yes. It's time to bring out... The Coin of Fate! What are you going to go for? Heads mm, or tails? Well, heads, I guess. Okay. It's all about those severed heads for this movie. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Or inexpressive heads. <laughs> <laughs> Off we go. Okay. It's Tails. Yes, no. It's <laughs> You're doomed, Rawhead. Mm. Oh. Elaine popped out at the last minute and saved the day. <laughs> God bless you, Elaine. <laughs> oh, yeah, well. Well, sorry, Rawhead. 
Back you go. No I will have to say, if people out there love cheesy, terrible, B-grade horror, <laughs> this, is, this is right up your alley. It is so enjoyable. <laughs> <laughs> And if you want a really eerie, disturbing evocation of Clive Barker's Books of Blood, run, run for the hills. <laughs> <laughs> so next episode, are we going to be running for the hills? Is it going to be a bad one? Well, it will be our Halloween special. So yes, it will be a scary feature we'll be covering. It's a film that's celebrating its 30th anniversary. And right. it's a remake that people might question why did it happen in the first place. So, yeah, it's going to be quite interesting. Yes. So, the film we are covering is the 1990 American horror film directed by Tom Savini, Night of the Living Dead. Oh, that's dangerous territory. Mm. The original's a classic. Yeah, exactly. Always dangerous to remake a classic. But fortunately, we will be guided by a special guest who has lots of insight to offer into this film. So looking mm -hmm. forward to that. Yes. Hope it's scary. Mm. Yes. Lock your doors. But open your doors to us on social media. <laughs> we yes. are on all platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as movieoubliette. And you can email us at movie.oubliette at gmail.com, just like Stuart did, because we love to hear from you. Yeah. Point out how we're plagiarizing other people. Uh, <laughs> yes. Not intentionally, though. <laughs> no, inspired by the greats. I mean, Tarkovsky, it's pretty good. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. but yeah, Tell us what you think of Rawhead Rex and tell us what you think of Night of the Living Dead as well, the remake. Does it deserve to exist? Does it not? Yes, yes, yes. Mm. If you haven't already, if you're a new listener, give us some feedback on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you are listening to us on. It really gives us a leg up. It does. Helps us get our words of wisdom out there. Yeah, it does. And also boosts our confidence in these troubling times. Yeah. And if you'd like to support the show, head on over to Patreon, because for as little as a dollar, you can nominate Moobly Award categories, films for us to cover in future. And for $5, you get access to lots of bonus additional material, like exclusive extended interviews with our special guests. Yes. You never know. There might be more interesting stuff you didn't know about films that you love. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Often is, actually, especially from the guests rather than us. Yeah. <laughs> Well, as always, it's great to have you listening to us. Bye for now. Stay safe. Bye. Bye-bye. review the films others tend to forget. Come with us and open up the movie Is there any connection between the murders? Yes, they're all dead.